you guys want to open your Bibles to um, Hebrews chapter 6, that'll be the second passage we get to. I'm not going to spend much time in the first uh, that was our reading. Our reading was from Luke 13. We covered that in our Bible class this morning. I'm not going to uh, preach a lesson based on that, uh, on that parable. Um, but it was just something that reminded me of why I want to speak about the topic. Um, <clears throat> when, uh, when I was a young engineer, my boss told me, um, the first year you cost us money. That's just how we look at you. A new hire out of college, you cost us money. The second year, you pay us back for the money we spent the first year. And the third year is the first year we start making a profit off of you. Um, that's just kind of their approach to engineers out of school, is there's so much for you to learn that the first year you're not going to produce a profit. You're not going to solve enough problems to even offset your salary, your health insurance, all that stuff, right? That's just <laughs> the paradigm they work under. Um, you know, according to Luke 13, God's got a similar timeline for fig trees. <laughs> um, he didn't complain after two years that the fig tree wasn't producing fruit. He didn't complain after one year that the fig tree wasn't producing fruit. But he did complain after three years. And uh, it's interesting that it's in a vineyard. Why would you plant a fig tree in a vineyard? Why wouldn't you plant a vine in a vineyard? Anyway, that's, that's another... I think that's part of one of the reasons why he says, why is this thing taking up space in my vineyard? Um, I could be growing a vine and producing what I normally produce. So it's out of place anyway, right, this fig tree. But he gives it three years. And um, I've always felt, the, re the reason that, that resonates with me is I've always felt that I'm, I'm bearing fourth-year fruit. Um, and I say always, meaning when I sort of came to myself as a Christian and understood that I wasn't thinking as a Christian, that I wasn't living as a Christian, I wasn't worshiping as a Christian. Um, I was just wearing the name as a Christian. Um, so I, I feel like I'm kind of the fourth-year fruit tree, um, that the ax was laid, you know, for me, and Jesus or God, you know, whatever, whoever's in that parable, sort of held off judgment and said, no, don't, don't take it down yet. Let's try one more year. And I feel like I got it maybe in that year, or maybe December of that year, <laughs> right? Um, I, I feel kind of late. And one of the things that helped me come out of that uh, was understanding how not real this place is that we live in. Um, you know, as I said, I, so I was, you know, I was baptized in 1994, a few months after I turned 17, but I feel like I've only really been bearing fruit, you could say, for maybe nine or ten years. I'm 41 now. So that, that's kind of, that's more than three years <laughs> of patience. Um, you know, at the time, and, and when I, I use this term bearing fruit, you know, kind of loosely because I feel like I haven't been maybe prolific in bearing fruit. Maybe God defines bearing fruit differently than I do. My definition of bearing fruit's changed in my life. Um, but early on, I took very seriously the task of not doing bad things. Right, I, right off the bat, I, I took that seriously. Um, you know, don't do bad things. Right? Um, I got that. I understood that's what a Christian 
doesn't do, right? So maybe that was bearing fruit in some form. Um, you know, but a fig tree doesn't really have to work very hard at not bearing olives. <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of effort bound up in a fig tree at saying, I can't produce oranges. I better stop producing oranges, right? So that's why I say, you know, I wasn't, in my opinion, necessarily bearing fruit in those times. I was just not bearing thistles or whatever, right? I was sort of getting the weeds out of the, out of the garden, so to speak. So why is that important? Well, it's important because the parable that we referenced, the parable that was read, the parable that we studied this morning, <laughs> indicates there's a time limit. Um, the fig tree isn't desirable just because it doesn't produce thistles. It's not allowed to keep using up the ground just because it doesn't produce thistles. It's got to produce figs. All right, now I want to get into Hebrews chapter 6. And I'm, I'm talking a little bit more about myself than I want to, but this is a an important aspect for me, so I'm, I'm hoping that there's someone here that this resonates with. And the, the idea that we're talking about, if you haven't guessed it, is maturity. Not complete maturity, not perfect maturity, not walking around with the full understanding of Jesus and everything that you do, right? But maturity that moves beyond, um, I'm just not going to bear thistles into a life where I am going to bear fruit. Um, in, in Hebrews chapter 6 addresses that. Before we read anything in Hebrews 6, I want to set up from Hebrews 5, though. The Hebrew writer is kind of going through this mildly deep theological right, task of trying to explain to people that Jesus is better. He's better than everything you've come in contact with. And he's about to get into the priesthood. And in chapter 5, he kind of it almost feels like he stumbles on the topic of Melchizedek. And, and, he, and he stops and he says, I've got a lot to say about Melchizedek and you guys are hard of hearing. Like it's, it's this aside where he pauses. He introduces Melchizedek and as soon as the name comes up, he stops and he says, about him I've got a lot to say. But you guys are hard of hearing. You need, you need milk and you should be teachers by now. All, right, all of these things. And, in, and he continues that thought in Hebrews chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. Right, stating what he, what he wants to do. Right, Hebrews six one. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Then there's a there's a shift that's has been very hard for me to understand. First three verses, he's talking about maturity and leaving behind the milk. Not forgetting it, but moving on to meat, right? In verse 4, now he says, for, right? These are related. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and, they have, and then have fallen asleep, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again, I'm sorry, not fallen asleep, fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. 
for ground that drinks the rain, which, is, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. The Hebrew writer here specifically relates immaturity with death. I, I, for whatever reason, he didn't, or he, he didn't feel compelled to even explain the connection, <laughs> but just stated, we got to get more mature, and then he said, because here's what death looks like, and you can't recover from it, right? He did, there's nothing in between. I mean, I would like to, you know, okay, what's the process here? How does that work? Well, it, is, it doesn't talk about that. So it's important. Right? And, and these things that he lists as the foundation, the elementary teachings of Christ, man, I, I wouldn't have put that on my list as el- of elementary teachings of Christ. Repentance from dead works, I talk about repentance a lot. Faith toward God, I talk about faith a lot. Instruction about washings, I talk about baptism a lot. Laying on of hands, I don't talk about laying on of hands a lot. Resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment, I talk about those things a lot. That's the elementary teachings. That's grade school. I mean, that's what he's saying here, right? And I'm not saying we forget those things. But if those things comprise our foundation of our faith, we're built on a foundation of milk, and we haven't moved on to the meat. And that's fine for a new Christian. A new Christian can't eat meat just like a baby can't eat meat. Not meant to. But you know if you're a new Christian or not. And you know if you should be eating meat. So for me, the change in going from this immaturity to maturity and moving on from these elementary things was really understanding how unreal or ephemeral this place is that we live. So my suggestion to you here, this is a one-point sermon, by the way. I've gone from three to two, now it's one. My one point is this. This world needs to be less real to you. And I feel confident saying that because I don't think you can ever get to a point where it's perfectly unreal to you. I mean, maybe it's possible, but... Maybe it's my, my pride in thinking you can't do that because I haven't gotten there yet, right? It could be a pride thing. So my point is, this world needs to be less real to you. And for me, maybe that's why I'm drawn to books like, you know, Our Mathematical Universe, right? They posit this theory that everything is just a mathematical construct and, and you know, nothing's real and it's all just energy. And I, I'm drawn to I like that idea because to me it's like, yeah. The, the more you see that this place is less, like, tangible, right, the less you value it or, or want to make it your God or want to serve it or bow down to it, right? So I just don't want you falling into the same trap I did. And here, here's, here are the verses I want us to look at. Let's turn over to Second Peter chapter 3. We're going we're gonna to flip a lot here from this point on. There's going to be quite a bit of flipping pages, or 
whatever you're using, flipping iPads. <clears throat> and here's the question I want you to consider while we're reading this. Is it real to you that this reality that exists is only here because God simply hasn't shifted his mind from patience to consummation? That's what I want you to think about. Is it real to you that this, right, this table, my flesh, the iPad I'm holding, right? Are these things, is, are the reality of these things for you only there because you understand that God simply hasn't shifted from patience? And I mean just shifting his will. That's all I'm talking about. Shifting from patience to consummation. Time to consummate. I'm, I'm ready to marry my son off. Right? When he shifts, this reality becomes much less. Let's look in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. I tend to think of that taking a long time. But the more I think about it, the more I think, why would it take a long time? I mean, you think it takes effort for God to burn up the earth? <laughs> like, I, I'm going to get started in South America, and then I'm going to work my way north. Right? I don't think it's going to take any effort at all. I think it takes more effort for God right now to hold off judgment than to destroy the world. I mean, I'll never forget the, I don't, I don't remember what year it was, but Marty Broadwell was preaching a sermon, and, and he said the picture he had of, of the state of things right now is that God is sort of holding back these waters of judgment, and we're kind of here in the center. Like, we're here, and it's not that God has the lightning bolt and he's just about to strike. It's that he's holding back the waters of judgment because they're, that's what we're due. And he's exerting effort to hold it off. Right? Until one day he says, All right, I'm ready. And he just puts his arms down. Right? I I I don't think this second Peter three ten is gonna take very long. I think the moment God decides, no more patience. It happens. Right? So how important is are these things that you're touching and sitting on right now? How real are they to you? Let's look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I would love to read this whole chapter. We don't have time for that. <clears throat> it's one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. I love thinking about the resurrection and how we'll be changed and the confidence we can have because Jesus was raised. But I just want to look at two verses. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 51 and 52. This is the very end. Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. At the blink of an eye. God's will is right now patience. That's his will right now. And we're going to read some verses in a second that state that explicitly. As soon as he shifts away from that, right? Everything that our senses interact with go away. Taste, hearing, sight, touch, 
whatever your senses interact with, ceases to exist. So how real is all of this stuff then, right? It's not very real. I know this, this, what I'm about, this is not biblical, this picture that I have in my head, right? I'm not basing it on scripture, but it's almost, right, the sensation to me is that the things that we get to interact with is sort of God, because God has imagined them into existence. It's almost like he's, he's, and I know it's more than that, he spoke it into existence. I'm not trying to, right, undercut the creation story. But to me, the reality of it is almost that sort of ephemeral, like unstable. As soon as God decides, okay, I'm done with this imagination, I'm done with this picture in my mind of the earth and the world and how it works. I want the real, right? As soon as he shifts, makes that shift, right, then all of this is burned up. And that's the only way we can describe it as being burned up because that's a thing of this world, right? It just, it it ends, it stops. So suddenly reality seems kind of fragile, right? So let's let's look at Colossians 1:17 uh, and provide some more evidence that, you know, God is the one holding these things together. Colossians 1 verse 17 speaking of Jesus says he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Did you ever think about that? I mean, we talk about the fact that Jesus was not just involved in the creation, but the one through whom the creation came into being. That's stated, right? But in him all things hold together. Why don't I just fly apart? Why don't I fly off the earth? Well, we talk about gravity, and we talk about electromagnetism, blah, 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 right? Okay, but why do those laws not change with time? My weight changes with time. Why can't the laws of the universe change with time? Well, in him, all things hold together. If he wanted them to change, they would. He doesn't. Right? Look in Hebrews chapter 1. Sorry, we're going back and forth. I'll probably hit, you know, I'll do this with with Hebrews, maybe 2 Peter. Go back to Hebrews chapter 1. There's another verse I want to look at. It shows this same idea. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Speaking of the Son, right? This is the beginning of Hebrews where... The Hebrew writer says, I'm going to try to explain to you that the Son is better. He's better than everything. Well, Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of His glory, God's glory, and the exact representation of His nature, and uphold thing, upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Okay. He upholds all things by the word of His power. So he says the word, and then they come into being. And they hold until he says another word. Right? Which is, I'm done, or I've come, or, you know, whatever. Right? Whatever his word is to end it, that's when this reality, this real stuff, isn't here anymore. All right. Let's, let's look at Second Peter chapter 3 now. And this is going to be a little bit of a longer reading because I want to read the context here so that we do understand that what we're talking about is just a change of God's will, what he wants in the moment. And I don't mean to say he's capricious. He's not fickle and saying, well, I want this, and now I want this, and now I'm back to this. I'm just saying in, in this moment we're told what he wants. He told us what he wants, and he wants patience. He wants salvation for all people. Right? 
2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in, in verse 3. Peter says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, listen to this, what are they saying? Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded by water. What Peter's saying is when people say this, they don't realize that the world hasn't existed forever. It was created. Nor do they realize that the world was flooded and everything was destroyed. Right? They're ignoring all of that stuff. Verse 7, But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Okay, this tells us why he's still holding all things together with the word of his power. Why? Verse 7, but by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire. He's specifically saying, I don't want it to be destroyed right now because I have a fire that's coming to this world. I'm preserving it with my word right now, but that's, that's the creation. What about the people? Well, that's what we read in verse 9. He is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Right? So we see what his will is. His will right now is, I'm reserving this world for fire, and the people who are in it, I want them to repent. That's his will. Now look down in verse 15. It's just backing up exactly what, what we just read. Second Peter 3, verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. It's just patience that's preserving this reality, right? How cold it is when I get up in the morning and how hot it is in the middle of the summer. How soft the carpet is or how hard the floor is right or how much money I get paid at my job right all of these things that we interact with this is the nature of those things I think if we could see that right we would invest less of our hope and less of our our emotions in those things and instead we would say, okay, I have a promise for the real. I have a promise to be given the real thing, the real treasures that are there. He says in Colossians 3, your life is hidden with Christ in heaven. Well, I thought my life was here. No, that's the whole point. This isn't your life. right? Your life is hidden with him, with Christ. And then when he's revealed... Your life is revealed. That's the extent to which the things around us are not real. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to go all crazy philosophical, but what I'm trying to say is we need to change our perspective 
so that when we look at the things around us, we say, these are like shadows of what I'm going to experience in heaven. Like relationships, right? So the relationships we have here are shadows of a relationship we'll have with God. Those kinds of things. And we need to become less invested in this unreal place. Temporary place. So, one more passage to read and, and we'll be done. But I want to restate my desire. My desire as the outcome of this lesson is that you don't follow my pattern of stagnation and unfruitfulness and wasted time because for whatever reason you were too invested in the things around you. That was my problem. Right? Job, school, and not just job but career. Right? Those things became too much right, in the center. Instead of being tools to be used right, on the journey to the real. That was my problem. I don't want that to happen to you. Let's look in Hebrews chapter 6. The Hebrew writer, writer put, puts it this way to those people receiving that letter. You know, right, when he, when he sort of, I would say he sort of chides them, okay? They're hard of hearing, they're immature, they need to grow up, right? But look in verse 9, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9. He says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and is still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. I think his hope for them is the same hope he would have for you or anybody naming Christ. Right? That you would move on, right, to meet, and that you would move on to hope, and that you wouldn't be sluggish in whatever sluggishness, and that you would realize the full assurance of hope until the end. Kelly and I were talking about this on Saturday, this idea of hope. It's one of the biggest annoyances in life for me is how the word hope is used in our current society. It's 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 substituted for the word wish, really, in my opinion, right? I wish it, the sun would be out tomorrow. That's really my wish. But what I'd say instead is, oh, I hope the sun comes out tomorrow, which means, you know, flip a coin, maybe it's there, maybe it's not. That's not how the word hope is used in Scripture. The word hope is, in Scripture is used like, uh, well, we talked about our job, right? I expect to go to work on Monday because I've done it for the last 20 years. Well, okay, that, that kind of word expect is the, like the word hope used in Scripture. I hope to go to work tomorrow. Right? How much more faith should I have that Jesus is going to return than that I'm actually going to be in work, at work tomorrow? 
There, there, are, there are a thousand things that could keep me from going to work tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, I can't, I can't, I don't have time to list the things that could keep me from going to work tomorrow. But I fully expect to work. Okay, right? Now, take that and say, how many things can keep Jesus from returning and keeping his promise? Zero. There isn't a single thing that can prevent him from returning and keeping his promise. Okay. Well, then why can't I take the same kind of hope and expectation I have about my day tomorrow and multiply it by 10 billion and apply that to the hope in Christ? Right? And the reason I can't is just, I think part of it is simply the way we, were, we use the word hope. What he says here in verse 12, so that you will not be... I'm sorry, verse 11. We desire each of you to show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. If that place is real for you, that hope becomes that kind of hope. You're just, you're just sort of waiting, right? It's not one of those things that you have on a calendar because we haven't been told today. But you're so sure of it that you're like, Paul, I know there's a crown of righteousness laid up for me. I know it's there. And I'll receive it when I get there. But he still called that hope. In that same context, he used that as hope. Right? I'm convinced that you're not trapped and destined to repeat my pattern. So wherever you are in your life and in your faith, don't be sluggish. Accept the unreality of this place in comparison to the reality of heaven is what I mean by that. Um, we just can't see them yet. It's really the only difference. I mean, as far as our perception. If we could see it, this whole earth would just fade away into the shadows. We would never pay attention to this anymore. If you, if you have ever doubted that you can bear fruit, you'll be shocked at what God can accomplish through you. And it really is, um, that is the correct picture. Because the, the way I used to think about it, right, this whole time that I was unfruitful is, why am I unfruitful? Why am I not producing fruit? Where is my fruit? What is spiritual fruit? I was always trying to redefine what, bearing fruit was because I wanted to make myself feel better about the fact that I wasn't bearing any fruit. Well, maybe it's just this. Maybe it's that. Right? Well, once you allow him to bear fruit through you, all of that goes away. Because you don't have to define it anymore. You just say, I'm not producing fruit. God is producing it because I've submitted to his will and I, I have the attitudes he prescribes. I do the things he tells me to do. Right? And then he bears fruit through those things. If you need to make known to anybody here that you're not bearing fruit or that you're concerned about you're not bearing fruit or you want to bear more fruit or whatever, any, any discussion about this that I've had, this is the group of people to have that talk with. I mean, God gave us a pattern of local churches for this kind of thing so Blake's going to sing a song and it's just to help 
give you time to think about this fact and the unreality of this place and the hope that we should have in heaven. And if you need to talk to someone about that, please do that this morning. Think about that as we stand and sing.